And I'm not sure we have even entered the discussion of how human-level AI can be beneficial to society. It's more about like, can we actually build it? And so at the moment, if we are only talking about can we build it, I don't see any benefit for society. The question is, once it's built, what can be done? Hello, and welcome to Steering AI, where we talk about how AI will shape the future and how we can steer it along the way. I'm your host, Ruben Adams, PhD student in AI at UCL. Today, I'm honored to be talking to the incredibly accomplished Professor Mark Deisenhort, DeepMind Chair of Machine Learning and AI at UCL and Deputy Director of our AI Center, where he leads the Statistical Machine Learning Group. His research interests center around data-efficient machine learning, probabilistic modeling, and autonomous decision-making with applications in climate, weather, science, and robotics. Professor Mark Deisenhort, welcome to Steering AI. Thank you for having me. So Mark, what have you been working on recently? So actually we had a paper deadline yesterday evening, and um, the paper is about putting a, a probabilistic model, which is called a Gaussian process, on some sort of like extended version of a graph called a cellular complex. So that allows us to to model more sophisticated graph structures using probabilistic models. And uh, what, what was the motivation behind this work? Uh, this was just more like a curiosity-driven approach of like how we could generalize Gaussian process models that live on graphs to structures that are a bit more general than graphs. So this sounds like quite fundamental work. What kind of applications do you imagine for it? Yeah, so this is correct. So we this this piece is is foundational, but the motivation behind a lot of our work are applications around uh, weather, um, but also in in robotics. And this particular work could be applied to modeling spatial temporal temporal uh, phenomena, for example, ocean currents or wind speeds on on a global scale. So my impression is that you've become more interested in climate science and weather prediction lately. What's driven that development of interest? So that is that is right. I I started off, I think maybe during my master's already to work on control theory, moved then from control theory to reinforcement learning to robotics. And more recently, we kind of like switched gears to focus more on uh, weather, uh, weather modeling or environmental modeling. And the reasoning behind that is that I wanted to kind of like broaden a little bit the scope of the research that we do. So for a while, we had two strands of research. One is uh, robotics as an application, and the other one was going into into kind of like spatial temporal modeling for, for weather, uh, for example. Um, but with limited resources, we needed to focus on one or we choose, chose to focus on one direction and then we chose the spatial temporal modeling because that aligns a little bit better with our kind of like expertise in uh, foundational uh, research. So are there broader motivations here around contributing to climate science and how AI can, can perhaps help mitigate the climate crisis? Yes, definitely. So there's, um, there's the motivation, obviously, um, that... To some degree, we are a bit stuck. I don't want to offend <laughs> offend people who spent decades on on developing models to describe weather or ocean currents. 
But there is definitely room for data-driven models to bring some change or some significant change in the way we model these kind of phenomena. And hopefully that will also lead to some, some breakthrough when it comes to, well, climate modeling, climate mitigation, resource allocation, and so on and so forth, and maybe even like policy development. But that's really a bit further down the road. Do you think better models is what we're really bottlenecked on? Uh, yes and no. So there are, for example, existing models for weather predictions that work really well in the medium medium term forecasting. So just maybe a few days or so that that works relatively well. Um, but when it comes to extremely short term forecasting, that's called nowcasting for maybe just an hour or two. These models are not overly good or when it comes to long-term predictions, when it goes to like climate seasonal predictions, then I think there's also some room for improvement. But also when it comes to um, modeling other things, for example, we work with the UK Atomic Energy Authority on modeling plasma flow in nuclear fusion reactors. There are you know, we face challenges that just cannot be described by the physics knowledge that exists at the moment. So when it comes to plasma turbulences, when plasma hits the wall of the fusion reactor, there are some limits to what we can model with the physics equations that, that we can write down. And then in that sense, some data-driven methods can complement the existing methods. So I'm not necessarily advocating for replacing existing existing models, but actually work with, with people who have spent a lot of time and effort and understand what they're doing to make existing models better or to complement the existing methods in places where they just don't work that well. So it's sort of augmenting existing methods rather than replacing? Yes, I think that's a, that's a fair description. So is there a tension between the physics community and the machine learning community in terms of having a deep understanding of how the plasma evolves and moves around versus simply predicting how it moves around? I think it depends on whom you're talking to. And so some people are a bit more open to looking at machine learning uh, models, others not so much. But I think we also have to be, as machine learners, we have to be careful as we, we're not invading other, uh, other areas and just say, oh, just use a, a deep neural network and we'll solve all your problems. I mean, that would be, um, in, in a way, really silly. Yeah. Right? We, we have to make this a, a joint effort and be respectful of, of the knowledge that comes from, uh, from the other side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How does having a better model of the climate or the weather or being able to make better predictions, how concretely does that help with climate change mitigation? Well, I mean, there's a difference between weather and climate, but let's say if we want to predict or to have better models for uh, extreme events, um, that could be uh, hurricanes, could be floodings, um, then we could maybe send out some, uh, some warnings to evacuate, right? We had I think last year or two years ago, there was a big flood in Germany that cost a lot of people's lives or, um, or also a lot of money uh, because of the destruction. Uh, we had regular floodings here in, in the UK as well. And if we have better forecasts or more reliable forecasts, then you know, we, can, we can work with them and then issue warnings. So that would be just one way where better modeling could, be, uh, could make a tangible difference. Yeah, for sure. You've been heavily involved at UCL with increasing diversity in the computer science department. How's that been going? 
we're making progress. So I, I took on the role of the chair of the Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Committee about maybe two and a half years ago. So that role didn't exist before. Our focus, I think, for the first one or two years was race equality, but we also worked on disability issues, neurodiversity, LGBTQ+, and so on. But I think especially in the race equality space, we made some tangible progress. We're building a, or have built a community within the department. We identified issues amongst staff and students where people felt uh, excluded or where there's identified issues where there's room for improvement. We created a specific scholarship for black undergraduate students to support them to go through uh, to an undergraduate degree at UCL. So there, was a, there, there were a couple of weird things that we discovered. So for example, there were scholarships that only fund the first year of your undergraduate degree, and then people wonder why people drop out after one year. <laughs> It just doesn't doesn't make sense. So that kind of like was consolidated in a way that at the moment or now we only offer full scholarships and we also got additional money in to create these new scholarships, which are called Aspire Scholarships. And we just had a meeting last week with the second intake, a uh, second cohort, and it was it was really great. So it's three scholarships per year for an undergraduate degree at uh, in CS at UCL. So that's just one one aspect where I think we already made quite a big difference. But, you know, in other aspects, um, we're also making making progress, whether that is in LGBTQ+, where we have kind of like setting up a community as well with uh, an, an, an allies network, with people who want to get involved in creating a community, so that's staff and students. We're looking at also issues uh, with uh, disability access. Uh, so you may uh, find that shocking, but currently UCLCS, although we are in 11 buildings, we don't have at the moment a single building that is fully accessible. That will change in the next couple of months where we get two floors in uh, one building. Well, one floor in one uh, in, in two buildings each. Right. That will be fully accessible, but it's a it's a sad state. Would you say there's progress being made there at least? Progress made in the sense that there is a raised awareness and a big push, definitely from the CS side. But we are not in control of the building, so that effectively then goes back to UCL uh, Central. So one of your main interests is reinforcement learning, in particular data efficient reinforcement learning. Why is reinforcement learning so data hungry? So if you if you look at most reinforcement learning algorithms, they are model free. That means they don't use a forward model to do rollouts. And learning a forward model is very difficult. So if you hypothetically, if you had an, an exact model that rolls out or kind of like that simulates the, the environment given a sequence of actions, then we are basically doing optimal control. We are solving an optimization problem. And that's, you know, that's great. You almost but, wouldn't need any data at that point. That's correct. So once you have a model, you don't need data. So once, or once you have an exact model, you don't need any data. So that, that is correct. But in a sense that reinforcement learning doesn't make the assumption that you have that model, optimal control does make that assumption. And so the question is, what are you going to do if you don't have that model? So one way is to just apply actions and kind of like see what happens and basically st save a big table of 
state action pairs that lead or give rise to rewards or kind of like maybe the successor states. And that's kind of like what model three methods do. Or you can try to learn a model from state action and next state pairs and then use that model as an, an emulator of your, of your environment. So now you could say that building the model is, is a great idea because then you don't need data anymore if the model is exact. But the problem is the model is not exact. The question then is, what are you going to do about this? So one key thing that I believe needs to happen is to be aware of the inaccuracy of the model and equip the model with uncertainty. So that could be uncertainty on the parameters of the model and then use those uncertainties during the planning stage or the, the, the rollout stage. And when you do that, there is some hope that you that you can actually get something done with less data. So that's kind of like an, you know one way to do more data efficient learning, but you have to be very mindful about the quality of your model. But there are also other ways to kind of like speed up learning. So there could be transfer learning, let's say you have already a policy learned for one particular task. And now the question is, can you transfer that knowledge to a new task that is somewhat related? So that will also speed, well, ideally will speed up learning compared to learning from scratch. And that kind of like those ideas are, let's say, independent of whether it's a model-based or model-free method. Um, there's a lot of work at the moment on offline reinforcement learning, we have some form of like huge data set from, I don't know, previous tasks, some form of like data set collector that may not be necessarily related to your task that you're interested in at the moment, but you can use that uh, offline data set to pre-train pre a policy, for example, and then fine tune using online data. Again, that will speed up um, learning, hopefully compared to learning from scratch. So this is similar to the move we've seen in large language models, where the field has gone from modeling specific tasks with individual models to having enormous foundation pre-trained models that can then be fine-tuned on specific tasks. It's obviously very difficult in reinforcement learning for a model to learn a model of its environment for each specific task separately. Do you see a similar kind of move happening in reinforcement learning, where we have enormous foundation models trained to learn enormous numbers of environments, and then we fine tune those in specific environments and specific tasks? Yes, I, I think that is that is also happening in, in reinforcement learning. Basically, the uh, large language model is a, also like a sequence model. Reinforcement learning is by nature a sequential task, so there's a very, very close relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So with generative models, we're getting better now at synthesizing training data for reinforcement learning agents. Does this eliminate the need for data-efficient reinforcement learning? I mean, there's a, there's a way of, of generating more data, so that, that is correct. And in, in a way, if that data is uh, sufficient, you may not want or not need to learn models. I mean, as I said earlier, learning models is not entirely trivial. And so it seems like there's an easy way out by just, just like yeah, in, in quotation marks, um, just generating more data using generative models. But you also need to train those models to make sure that data you generate is meaningful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So you're known in the department as a big fan of Gaussian processes. What do you like so much about GPs? Um, I think one of the one of the nice features of a Gaussian process, I think you, you mentioned this at some point earlier about interpretability of models. A Gaussian process has only a few hyperparameters and you can, in many cases, actually interpret what these parameters do. For example, there's a link scale parameter that tells you about how, how I don't want to say how smooth, but kind of like about long-term correlation of uh, function values. Like it tells you something about that. Or there's an, an amplitude parameter that tells you about the amplitude of the function. So you can really explain something about the properties of the function that you want to model. It's a periodicity parameter depending on the kernel. You can interpret a Gaussian process. Additionally, a Gaussian process gives you uncertainty about well it's a it's a probabilistic model in a way that it has built in model uncertainty which is really nice and given how powerful that is inference in gaussian processes are kind of like let's say at least in the in a in a simple setting where everything is conjugate you can do in closed form so that i think these are really nice properties of gaussian processes and is this uncertainty calibrated uh, so that's a good question. So empirically, yes. If the model assumptions are correct, the uncertainty is calibrated. Right. Okay. So any error in the calibration is from model uncertainty. It could also be the wrong prior. So for example, if I choose a prior that says, okay, my function is differentiable and my function is not differentiable, then the uncertainty is not necessarily calibrated. Also, um, it becomes a bit more complicated in non-conjugate models. For example, if we do classification, then things become a bit more complicated because then we start, need to start doing approximate inference. Or if we move to sparse models, right? So then again, we have a, an approximation to the posterior distribution. So it, as soon as approximations come in or the prior assumptions are not exactly right, um, then talking about calibrated uncertainty is a bit more difficult. But then there are ways where you could post hoc calibrate uncertainty using, for example, uh, conformal prediction or other ways. So is it, is it true that when you're writing papers on sort of kernel methods or Gaussian process or whatever, that you have to sort of excuse yourself for not doing deep learning on the specific task you're doing? No, we don't need excuses for this. <laughs> Deep learning has clear flaws. <laughs> it's always an argument to use Gaussian processes because in deep learning, it's extremely hard to get uncer meaningful uncertainties out. And even if you want to, it's super expensive. Obviously, you can't solve these large scale problems using Gaussian processes, you know, the, or that say the problems that you can use, uh, that you can, uh, or that you use deep learning methods for. But there are other problems that you can solve with Gaussian processes where I would definitely not use a, a, a deep network for. And so I think the kind of like the problems that you want to solve are potentially different. Obviously, uh, there are overlaps, but uh, I don't need an excuse to use a Gaussian process. I think a Gaussian process has its strengths. Um, it also has its weaknesses. And if you, or when you write a paper, Normally, I would say, you know, um, 
okay, deep learning has had some success in this area, but you know, predicting uncertainties is tricky and expensive, but you could use a Gaussian process and you don't have to worry about various other things. There's obviously a computational issue in Gaussian processes. They scale not particularly well, but there are, I think, some pretty good sparse approximations uh, of Gaussian processes. I would say the problem with um, large data sets at least in the number of data points, is more or less not an issue anymore. So they ha we have seen Gaussian process models running on billions of data points, hmm. uh, or sorry, tra training set sizes of, of billions. Uh, what is still challenging is high dimensional inputs. Right. So images, for example, would be, I think is something like that is still a big problem. If you go away from classification or uh, representation learning, so if you look at regression problems, a Gaussian process, I believe, should be the first choice, at least when it comes to, say, relatively low or medium dimensional problems. If you want to model functions that go from 5D uh, to the real numbers, then a Gaussian process could be a, a very good and very powerful choice here. So you published this algorithm called PILCO in 2011, which is for data-efficient reinforcement learning. I've heard that your MATLAB implementation of this is actually still a strong benchmark, even this many years later, and that it's in fact faster than many Python implementations. Is that true? Uh, that may, may be true, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I haven't, so I haven't to, be, to be fair, I haven't, I haven't touched this in a while, but every maybe every couple of years I just run this just for fun uh, on, on, on the laptop again. And it's like, oh, wow, the hardware got faster again. <laughs> oh, I see, I see. So you have several positions. You're the DeepMind Chair. You're also the Deputy Director of the AI Center. You've got a whole host of Best Paper Awards, Promising Young Academic Award from UCL. How are you making time for all of this? I mean, most of this is because I have amazing students. Right? It's not... It's not my work alone, right? This is um, effort that comes from a, from a great team. I mean, definitely from the the academic side, right? The the paper awards is it's it's all down to amazing students and collaborators. So let's move now towards recent progress in AI. Has any of this caught you by surprise? Um, I think a couple of developments recently that did catch me by surprise. So one is. Uh, ChatGPT. So that was surprising, especially also kind of like the size of progress or the amount of progress that was made and the impact it had. That was surprising. On a different, maybe a different application was protein folding. That that was also a great surprise. I mean, I think both of them caught me by surprise. Uh, I'm not following those directions too much, so I don't work in, in protein folding or with large language models or language models in, uh, to begin with. So that I think these two developments were super exciting and mm. surprising in a, in a good way. And was it GPT-3 that was surprising or ChatGPT? I think uh, ChatGPT was the one that made it to the mass market in the, in yep. the end, right? So, you know, something that survives contact with reality for more than 24 hours <laughs> um, is is surprising and you know it's still still up and running so what was so surprising about ChatGPT the fact that it could generate meaningful boilerplate text was 
Very, very interesting. And it's being used by so many people now. I mean, obviously, we hear about, you know, students using it for essays and that's fine. Um, But we also use it. I I have a student who has a startup who told me that he uses ChatGPT to draft pitches for VCs. People use it for grant applications. So boilerplate text is great. So you called it boilerplate text. Uh, it can surely do a lot more than that, right? I mean, it can solve maths puzzles. It's done quite well on the on various academic benchmarks and coding tests. Mm-hmm. Did you use that word on purpose, boilerplate? I mean, I was more like on on text generation. Right. Not, uh, I was not talking so much about coding um, uh, or uh, solving maths puzzles. Right. Right. But yeah, using it as a as a tool to draft some code. Sounds like a great idea um, mm-hmm. to to speed up um, the the development process. Mm-hmm. Do you imagine uh, future language models being good enough that they're not just drafting, but uh, correcting the draft and improving and iterating to the point where the human involvement is shrunk to a much more minimal level? Yeah, I think we are not. If we are not there yet, we are definitely not far. Right? You upload a text and say, you know, simplify this text, shorten the text, and immediately you have the answer. I mean, that already exists. Mm, mm. Yeah, so one, once you've got this more deliberative thinking where you've got a back and forth, then back and forth between the model and its own output, um, then it seems like a lot more jobs are now up for grabs uh, that could be automated. Um, do you find this concerning at all, or do you think it's just a case of there'll be new jobs, just as every previous new technology? Yeah, there's always. I mean, there's always a discussion about um, job replacements. Some jobs will disappear over the next decade or so. I don't think it's going to be imminent, but new jobs will also be created, and the tools that are being developed these days also can enhance existing jobs or modify existing jobs. For example, I I recently attended Fashion Meets AI workshop here in in London where designers of clothing used generative models or generative AI to draft dresses and then they got modified by the designers to get them up to scratch. But as a draft, and I don't want to say boilerplate again, but you know, (laughs) as a draft, this is was great. And the, the fashion they displayed was amazing. So that comes obviously from somebody who has no sense for fashion, <laughs> but uh, I, I thought it was really amazing. Okay, but again, I believe there will be the creation of new jobs that don't exist yet, in order to support this kind of system, which mm-hmm. didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. Do you have examples in mind? Um, I mean, there's uh, always a question of maintenance. A few years ago, I visited. Um, so my, my family comes from a rural area in Germany. And for a few years ago, I visited a farm where they had a fully automated cow stable right. with one employee and 120 cows for wow. milking and, and, <laughs> and cleaning and everything and feeding. I was actually super fascinated by this because mm-hmm. there was computer vision was involved, there was uh, data analysis involved. Was they check automatically by just looking at the milk what you can analyze and see whether the cow is healthy or not. But you know, there's only one person 
left to manage 120 cows. Mm -hmm. um, but then you also have to maintain these kind of robots. So that creates some new jobs. You have potentially data analysts that look at the milk and uh, or, you know data of the milk. And so that you create new jobs, which didn't exist before. I believe something similar is happening with the language models or generative models that are being developed at the moment. Mm -hmm. So these maintenance or data analysis jobs, they sound like quite high-skilled jobs. Is it possible that the new jobs that come into existence are all high-skilled jobs that take a lot of training and a lot of education to do? I'm not sure whether they are high-skilled, higher-skilled, maybe. So you, there, will be, there will be some training um, required but I also believe that we develop tools that make it easier to do those jobs. Mm -hmm. Easy enough for an AI to do it? I'm sure no, the question is, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> going in the direction of like, do we need jobs or are we going to have <laughs> jobs at all in the future if, if there is an automated system that could just do all the jobs? That would be, wouldn't be too bad, I guess. Yes. Is this sort of your positive vision for... An AI future? It's a bit extreme, so I believe there will be a lot of downsides with this as well. Um, again, I so it could be could entirely be that if one doesn't have a daily routine, let's say a job is in a way a daily routine that could end up with all kinds of like mental health problems uh, or or physical problems. It's uh, it's I think it's quite complicated or difficult for me to to speculate about this. Mm. So you mentioned that you see possible downsides as well in the future. What do you have in mind there? Um, I mean, the uh, AI or machine learning methods can cause cause some problems. I don't think we have to look into the future. We can look at where we are right now. And you can use AI or machine learning technologies are being used to marginalize under you know already marginalized groups to marginalize them further to kind of like extend the power gap in a way between groups of people um so that is that is definitely something that is already happening there is the danger of um, misinformation i mean if you look at i mean i don't have a twitter account anymore uh, or x it's called now it's probably wise um yeah i i left about a year ago i think that was good for my sanity but what i've heard is that there's a lot of misinformation going on uh, at the moment about political events happening and you know that is i think largely driven by some form of like automated trolls um so we don't have to go into the future. I think we can already look at what's happening right now in the future. There's much more potential for, for danger because techniques are being developed further and further. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a sort of cat and mouse game between production and detection. Who do you think ultimately wins in that race? Well, hopefully it's going to be a balance. It's almost like, you know, virus and antivirus. Uh, it's maybe it turns out to be something like that where right. you have to find or well a balance will be found right i mean at some point you can presumably draw once you've sufficiently well learned the manifold of all possible images you could just draw from that distribution surely at some point there's just no way to tell whether that image just a sequence of pixels is genuine or not possibly yeah 
that is that may we may end up in that situation mm. so you mentioned that ai could exacerbate power imbalances could you give an example i mean many years ago maybe that's not totally up to, well it's not up to date but vision systems had issues with darker skin tones or identifying women there were some issues with systems that were inherently were racist uh, also when it came to court rulings so there have have been analyses that showed that these systems were inherently working against people of color these are just uh, two or three examples Mm-hmm. where automated systems were not working for the say general public but only working for a subgroup or preferred one group of people over another group of people. Mhm. There's an example with image generation models as well where higher paid roles will be depicted as having lighter skin tones and lower paid roles pictured as having darker skin tones. The problem clearly starts with the data. Do you think it's possible to with fine tuning or weighting methods or whatever get rid of this bias in models or is it always going to be there in some form until we tackle it at the root cause with the data set? I mean it's not it's not only the data. I mean the data is one one aspect um but it's also the people building the models. Right? If the people building the models are all I don't know male white 20 plus year or 20 to 30 year olds then there's also a problem because you don't get different opinions or different considerations into the model building. So it's not just the data. It's, I would say, I would probably go back to the pipeline and say, you know, the entire pipeline is prone to flaws. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is why it's important to have a diverse computer science community. That's definitely one aspect why a diverse community or computer science community is is important, but it's also not the only argument for having a, a diverse community in the CS uh, in, or in computer science. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think AI is currently overhyped or underhyped? <laughs> in a way, maybe both. Um, <laughs> okay, but yeah, I'm I'm not sure. Um, I had a conversation yesterday with somebody about the AI hype, and then in the, I think in the end we decided you know, hype is actually not really what matters. Right. It matters what is being delivered. Okay. So if you, you know, hype doesn't help. It, think about what, what you can deliver. Okay, well, let's, let's put it a different way. Are people's impressions of what AI can deliver out of step with what it actually can deliver? That depends on whom we are talking to. <laughs> um, okay, let's start with the general public. I don't know the general public. Okay. Um, but let's say people, the media, politicians, the general public, if you, if you want to call it like this, many people don't really understand what is happening at the moment, and I'm also not saying that I totally understand all of what is happening, but there is some form of like fear that, I don't know, AI will take over the world and or some AI system will take over the world and uh, humans are being destroyed and something like this. Mm-hmm. So I take it you don't take this risk seriously? 
Um, I would say we should maybe focus on other problems we have at the moment. You know, sure, there is this, there is this, I would say, low risk danger that this may happen in some point in the future. But I believe there's far too much focus on this question and not so much on where AI can help solving problems that we otherwise cannot solve. And these problems are literally burning problems if you look at climate change, for example. Mm -hmm. it's get, I think it's getting too much attention and too much focus. I'm not saying we shouldn't be paying attention to this at all, um, but I really believe we should primarily focus or more focus on other problems where AI can make a positive difference and not so much about existential risks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it as a sort of low risk probability uh, in the future. What kind of time frame are you thinking? I I don't know. I can't give you a real real answer to this. Fair enough. Fair enough. So in terms of hype, what about the market? Do you think they're overinvested in AI at the moment? Uh, my first thought now was no, because otherwise I would have more grant money <laughs> or funding for, for our research. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but maybe I'm just doing the wrong kind of research and I should work on like existential risks. Or, or large language models. Or large language models. So maybe that uh, I should just work on those kind of things. <laughs> well, about, about large language models specifically, do you think uh, the hype there is too much? Um, I'm not sure actually. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of interesting things have come out of those models, or in generative AI models, and I I think there is something to it. It's I think it's not the end of the story, but it's um, I mean, given the impact, I think it's it's fair to have invested or to invest, um resources into developing these things further. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I would say always keep in mind there is other stuff going on as well. And it's not just this one thing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think that's what we're trying to do in the podcast is um, represent all of these issues and not make it an either or. I think we can easily take all of these risks seriously. Yeah, we have we have lots of people working in in AI and I mean also given I say post 2010-ish the research community exploded I mean this is largely due to deep learning I mean I I don't want to admit this uh, <laughs> too much but it's it's due to deep learning because deep learning did have a huge impact on the AI machine learning community you know if you look like pre 2010 we were working with like small scale problems that we uh, the algorithms we we developed we could actually understand uh, you know the 10 parameters in our models we can explain and since 2010 ish uh you know, it the models became bigger, the data sets became bigger, uh, the things we can do became more and more complicated, and machining has very much turned into an empirical um, science, which is fine. 
um, I mean, there, there are still people doing uh, like theorems and proofs, but that community does or didn't grow that much over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, whereas the empirical science uh, branch in, in machine and just like exploded like exponentially. There's also exponential growth in terms of the size of the frontier models, the amount of compute being invested, the amount of money being invested. You've got all of these things sort of exploding recently. And we've had extremely surprising, from my point of view, progress in the last few years as well. If this continues, if these kind of ex exponentials continue for a few orders of magnitude, things could get really quite crazy within a decade or two. Do, do you think much about like where we're going? Are you excited? Are you nervous? Um, it's a bit, bit of both, right? I mean, if you look at you know ten years back where we were ten years and you know where we are now, so now think about the mindset that we had ten years ago and kind of like the things that we can do now were unimaginable for most people, at least. The compute power we had. 10 years ago, I mean, <laughs> I think I think our phones now can do more than what uh, what we could do in terms of like at least regular compute 10 mm. years ago. Mm. And maybe in 10 years, <laughs> the phone that you have at 10 years um, will be able to train maybe um, GPT-2 or so. You know, there will be advances and it's, it's very hard to predict into the future. Um, but we also have huge challenges and we need to think about how to solve those or address those challenges, maybe not solve them to completion, but uh, at least make progress. So if you had a speed dial for the different areas of AI research, which ones would you want to dial up and which ones would, we, would you want to slow down? I would like to dial up machine learning for scientific discoveries. I think mm. that that is great or, you know, scientific discovery or environmental science. I think that is, these are problems that, that need solving, uh, whether that is weather modeling, whether it's, you know, I don't want to say solve nuclear fusion. I mean, that's been being solved for the last uh, 70 uh, <laughs> years or so. But, you know, making significant progress in that area could be interesting because that would also be one answer to the energy problems or carbon problems that we have at the moment. Mm -hmm. So I, I would like to see some progress in that space. And, you know, if we, if we can also make more progress towards curing diseases such as cancer or I would say this is generally good for the people and people and planet. So this is mm. this is good. I th I would love to dial that one up. Can you imagine AI models helping with the core of scientific progress, as in coming up with hypotheses, designing experiments, evaluating results? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I think a few years ago I was working with uh, people at CERN on problems related to the Large Hadron Collider. And we built just like a fast proxy emulator, a simulator they had to kind of like detect whether some some events happen in the uh, in the LHC. 
and the problem with the regular simulator is that you have to wait for quite a while to f see the outcome of an experiment or hypothetical experiment. And with the simulator, or with the, sorry, with the emulator that we built, uh, we could get a speed up of factor ten ish thousand. Oh which wow! Me yeah, which which means you can ballpark probe this emulator and get approximate answers for a lot of parameter settings, which you then can use to do experimental design. Right, so this, I think this is something that, that was fun. I think it's also useful uh, because that will accelerate scientific discoveries. And similar, uh, you can use machine learning methods to do experimental design, whether that is drug design or molecular design, whether that is even like infrastructure design again like in the for example in the context of building power plants so some of these some of these things that you might want to dial up have dual use risks so drug design for example a model created for drug design could also be used with a bit of tweaking to create poisons or toxins yes i yes that is that is possible and uh, robotics could also be used for warfare it's already being used for warfare, yeah? Certainly, yeah, yeah. And as they become more and more automatic, mm -hmm. um, this could be an issue. Is there a way we can in some way differentially progress uh, these different fields so that the, <laughs> the good guys win, to put it crudely? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, don't, I, I actually don't think so. Um, right. You have to put regulations in place, but I, I don't think so. I don't think you can prevent people from developing harmful things. Okay. So maybe then the question is, for something like drug discovery, does the attacker or the defender have the advantage? Should we be asking these questions before we develop this kind of technology? We already have chemical and biological weapons, nuclear weapons as well, so ABC weapons. That already exists they will potentially become more sophisticated. I mean, if you want to develop them on, I don't know, small scale. Uh, but, you know, we have poisonings happening all the time. I'm, so I don't, I'm not sure whether, whether AI or machine learning methods will make a huge difference in terms of like the harm that can already be done. I mean, you could imagine a bespoke poison that only affects people of a certain demographic. Um. Yes, that is that is possible, and that will be genocide. Um, yeah, but you know, we don't need poisons to commit genocide. Well, I suppose maybe it's like the disinformation. There's already disinformation. Lots of people can do it, but if you increase, if you make it easier to use, if you open source it, make it freely available online, then you're just sort of cranking up this risk. Yeah, sure. I mean. If you don't open source it, you rely on the, uh, I don't know, mental state of the people controlling it. Um, so it's it's tricky, uh, whatever you do. Mm. Mm. I mean, there might be an argument to be made that we shouldn't open source a lot of these models. And who is in control of the models then? <laughs> well, sometimes it's better to trust one government than every individual. Oh, which one? <laughs> I want to want to want to trust the UK government or the US government or and then change wait for the change of government and then do you are you going to revoke this or who makes that decision? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if the UK government has control of one of these models, then at least they can 
<laughs> You're cringing. This sounds better than everybody on the planet having one, including terrorist organizations. I can't comment on this on the podcast. Fair enough. <laughs> Imagine this government has control. Of, oh my God, they can't even control themselves. But they at least don't have a death wish for the entire of humanity. Are you sure? <laughs> have you have you have you seen the Home Secretary recently? <laughs> so the phrase AGI sort of snuck into the machine learning vernacular um, without perhaps the criticism it deserves. So in in one sense, it's it's mathematically impossible. The no free lunch theorem says that you can't have one algorithm that can learn every possible task. But in another sense. We're an existence proof that you're going to have highly general intelligence. How do you feel about the phrase? I don't think it's meaningful because it's not well defined. And so you, everyone who says AGI makes their own assumptions and interpretations of what it should be. And in a way, I don't think that is meaningful. And there's also like the discussion about a bit more historical about what intelligence is or an intelligent algorithm is. A few decades ago, people said, oh, yeah, if a thing can play chess to a re at a reasonable level, then this is an intelligent system. Once that problem got solved, it's like, oh, no, that's not really intelligent. That's like do question answering, you know, mm -hmm. and then the shifting the, goalposts. <clears throat> right. So you, exactly. You move the goalposts because you can't really define. I mean, you can set targets, right? And then you redefine things. And AGI is, I think, is even more complicated than that. I also don't think it's... You know, maybe AG, if people say AGI is just recreating human intelligence or something like this, if that is what general intelligence means, I think then just using a digital device will not succeed because human brains also do chemical processing. That's so digital intelligence in some way is will not be able to succeed. Right. That sounds like cheating. You're saying there's some kind of intelligence chemical processing going on in the brain that you wouldn't be able to replicate in silicon. With a digital device, yes. Okay. But we can probably get quite far without that. Uh, possibly. But I'm, I'm, I'm just saying I'm not sure whether the expression of artificial general intelligence is meaningful mm. or whether it's even something we should be aiming for. And maybe just saying, okay, I just want to build something a digital digital device or a digital processor that solves problems. And I would just not go into that intelligence discussion. So when companies like OpenAI or DeepMind, Anthropic explicitly say that they're trying to create AGI, do you think they're just playing into the hype or they, are they confused about what, what the term means? I'm, I'm just saying I wouldn't do this. I think that there is um, it's a business model you attract attention by saying these things. I also believe that you know some companies really believe that this is something they should be aiming for or they want to work on, and that's that's fine. But I personally don't think it's meaningful. And what about the, the phrase human-level AI? How would you define that? So I, I could imagine sort of an extended Turing test where you're having a conversation with an agent on a computer. All you can see is text. But you can give it any task you wish and get back the results as long as it's text-based. So as long as it's purely a cognitive task, not one mm -hmm. that requires mm -hmm. embodiment. And then your job is to try and figure out whether it's a human or a model. Okay. So I, I would say a model that can pass that has human-level intelligence. 
Would that be a coherent concept? Maybe, but I mean, so I want to maybe also go back to something I said earlier. It's like, what do you want to do with it? Mm. What's the goal? What's what's yeah? What's what's the goal? I think for a lot of people, it's just sheer curiosity, the thrill of it, and that's fine. Fair enough. But you know, <laughs> if that, if that, you know, if this is something people people are curious about or excited about, then you know, that's I think that's fine. You know, we are researchers you know uh, and we are also excited about things that probably nobody else is, cares about and we we do these things because we are curious we are excited about these things um and so if uh human level ai or agi is something that drives progress um f by motivating people to do something i think that's fair mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so if if it's possible to create such a system then because inference is so much cheaper than training, at the point at which we have enough knowledge and enough computation to train such a system, we'd probably be able to deploy thousands in parallel. And having thousands of these models that can do any task a human can do, I don't know, it's at least pause for concern, right? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> I think there is also something that we should consider, which is <laughs> the, the physical world. Or you can have like a million of these models and then ask these models to pick up a cup. Right? So the, the embodiment is, is a problem. So when, I don't say when AI hits reality, it's over. <laughs> uh, so as, as long as, as uh, an algorithm can just exist in a, in a computer of some form, it's fine, right? There's a lot of potential that happens. But at the point where you actually have to interact with the physical world, we face a lot of other problems. You know, chess playing solved, but I can't move the piece. Mm, mm. So I need, well, in that case, a, a human person to move move the chess piece. So you mentioned earlier the, the risk of disinformation and, and uh, bot farms. I can also imagine the risk of hacking or writing spoof tweets from government officials. These are all cognitive tasks that would fall under the umbrella of human-level AI. Yes. I imagine you could wreak absolute havoc with just an internet connection and a thousand of these models. You, you can, right? And you can make people do things for you. You just manipulate people. That is, that is definitely possible. I'm not, right, I'm not saying this is, there's, there's no danger of, of having, um, having these manipulative models around. I'm just saying if the algorithms were to act by themselves in the physical world, things become problematic mm. but you can always have or you manipulate people or other agents to execute whatever you want them to do to manipulate them to for you to do the things that you want to do but can't do in the physical world then uh right this is dangerous yeah using humans as your hands for example mm-hmm do you think it's sufficiently dangerous that we should perhaps scrutinize companies who have this as their explicit goal? I think a healthy amount of regulation is always uh, is a good idea. What kind of regulation do you imagine could mitigate these risks? I think that's a discussion that needs to be needs to be had with uh, with governments and mm. uh, and also AI developers. Mm. So one possible regulation might be limiting the autonomy of these systems. So there's always a there's always human oversight. Um, 
that they are used more as tools rather than agents. Um, but of course, there's enormous economic incentive to create agents, to have models that do things for you without you having to check whether it's doing the right thing, without you having to spoon feed it tasks. The, the regulation seems like an absolute minefield to try and prevent these these kind of things from happening. Um, I think that is that is correct. Yeah, but there are people out there whose job it is to do or to put regulations in place. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you're absolutely going to hate this round, but uh, what I'm hoping to do with all guests is to do a prediction round where you give us your best guess uh, for different events. Um, so this, this human-level AI system, by what date do you think there's a 50-50 chance that we will have created such a system? Oh, when you say buy, it can happen before, let's say, 2100. Okay. Could happen next year, but I'm safe with 2100 because I'll be dead by the time it happens. <laughs> <laughs> but you think 2100 is the time by which it's about a coin toss, whether we've created it by then or not? Uh, no, we may, <laughs> may be much further than that. No, I mean, maybe 2030. That's that's, uh, that's pretty soon within our lifetime. <laughs> yep. Wow. Okay, I didn't expect that. Human level AI in the way that you defined it earlier, not mm -hmm. AGI. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go into that. What do you think would be the the main differences there? I don't even know what AGI is. Okay, fair enough. <clears throat> fair enough. Okay, and then what do you think the chance is of this being a net positive for society? I was about to say zero, um, because, I mean, but I, I, I'm not saying that yet. Um, the question is, you know, what does it actually do for society? And we don't have that answer yet, right? So you said earlier, okay, people want to may want to create a human level AI just because they're curious. So that doesn't have any kind of societal benefit immediately. So if we can deploy these systems for society, then I see there's potential for net benefit. But for just like curiosity, I don't think there's any societal benefit. It's like, oh, if I want to invert this matrix, I'm curious of like how I can do this by hand. It doesn't have any societal benefit. So this would be a political question about how you actually integrate it? It's. I think it's how we use the results from developing human level AI and make some form of like meaningful contribution to to society and i'm not sure we have even entered the discussion of how human level ai can be beneficial to society it's more as you said earlier it's like more about like can we actually build it and so at the moment if we are only talking about can we build it i don't see any benefit for society the question is uh once it's built what can be done right but we, i don't think we have that discussion at the moment. And when you're putting a low chance on it being a net positive for society, are you putting significant weight on zero or negative? <laughs> um, right, so now now it's good to have calibrated error bars here. Um, I mean, uh, if the point is we just develop human-level AI then there is zero benefit to society. The question is, how do we deploy it? And if we deploy it, let's say if there is some human level AI built, 
we deploy it in a in a meaningful way, then there could be a net benefit. But they're also dangerous, right? It's, it's always like two sides of a coin. And if you were to make your all things considered best guess as to whether we'll deploy it in a in a useful way or a dangerous way or a neutral way, well. All things equal, I stick with uh, zero. Because, <laughs> um, well, it's not negative, which it could easily be negative. Yeah. Uh, so I would go with an average of zero and some rather large uncertainty around that. My guest today has been Professor Mark Dysonhort. Thank you for coming on Steering AI. Thank you so much for having me and thanks for a great conversation. You've been listening to Steering AI from the Department of Computer Science at UCL. Subscribe for future episodes, join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag SteeringAI, and follow us on the account at UCLCS for announcements of future guests and your chance to suggest questions. Thank you for listening, and bye for now.